if you've got an EP team and you've got individuals that are coming in who come from backgrounds that um, could be perceived as ones that were formerly maybe a threat to that particular jurisdiction, I'm talking maybe people who were in the intelligence community and have now moved into the EP world, I would suggest that presents a risk. Welcome to The Circuit Magazine, the number one source of information on protection matters, the industry-leading magazine for all security professionals who want to stay ahead of the game. Operating in Asia. What a nice topic for the new year. Kong Hei Fat Choi, but it's not actually Chinese New Year. It's okay. I'll take liberties. I'm here with Sean West, and together we're going to be speaking with Olivia Lawrence from Ion Asia, headquartered out in Hong Kong. Uh, how are you doing, Sean? How is your Christmas New Year, and uh, what's happening? No, I'm I'm all good. Happy New Year to you and everyone listening as well. Um, no, it's been nice to you know, foot off the gas for a little bit, have a nice family Christmas, quiet New Year, and then sort of attack in the New Year. With you know, a lot of relish, really. I've got you know personal personal development courses booked in. Looking forward to your event at the end of the month, the CP Technology Forum. Can't wait to be involved in that and meet some old faces, old and new. So yeah, no, really looking forward to twenty twenty four. Fantastic, yeah, and and, and uh, yeah, that off to a flying start. Um, thank you for everyone that's uh, registered. Uh, we do close registrations early it each year. It just is a capacity thing, so please do get your place. But uh, BBA uh, members, please go to the special member section in the app to secure your special place, okay? That is uh, just for the BBA membership. So um, we're, we're, we're grateful for your support. But Asia, big topic, big continent. Have you ever thought about operating there? Um, you, you know, I've, I've operated all around the world. and It's one of the places that... Unfortunately, I've never been over to like Hong Kong, China, these sort of places. Um, obviously, operating Afghanistan, things like that. But traditional China, Hong Kong, no, I, I don't have any experience. So I'm actually really interested in listening to this because I always like learning about new areas because you, you never know when the next opportunity is going to come up, right? Yeah, and I, I sense that maybe people think there's a language barrier in certain places. Um so that might prevent them investigating it. Uh, the, m maybe there's uh, a, a cultural barrier. Maybe there's uh, some type of visa barrier. I, I I don't know. I think these are the sort of things we can unpick um, because people will be looking for new tasks. And, you know, maybe uh, a company like Ion Asia could use international support. But I think it's going to be a wider session than just EP, isn't it? It's not It's not just EP services that one can provide that far afield, is it? No, I think that there's there's many services, like like any company operating in the security industry, there's investigative services, um, a whole array of services that, that can be provided. And I think certainly in the UK with what's happened you know, recently with Ukraine, Russia, and a lot of you know, Russians are leaving the UK, there definitely seems to be a lot more influx of Chinese into the UK. So I think there's definitely a lot more opportunities, certainly for UK-based, for working for, you know, the Chinese family officers. And that may well involve, you know, travelling out there to Asia with, with these principles. So it's it's definitely worth keeping your eye out as a business and what opportunities are out there. For and, the product and, you, you yeah, and, 
and 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 many opportunities that that people are trying to take advantage of just require a little bit of preparation a little bit of <laughs> a little bit of groundwork um the fear uh, last year i remember the word on the street everyone was talking about de-chinification after uh, another the uh, something asian that they were embarking on that, that that really hasn't come to fruition has it and i think if we look at the world um in 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 a multipolar way then there's there's still a lot of great opportunities for collaboration so um asia predominantly east asia is what we're talking about uh, today uh, let's get into it with olivia lawrence emea head of eye on asia And now, let's meet one of the contributors to The Circuit magazine. Operating in Asia. Today, Sean West and myself are delighted to be speaking with Oliver Lawrence, Managing Director, EMEA of Eye on Asia, based out of uh, Hong Kong, or at least headquartered out of Hong Kong. Lovely to have you on. How are you doing? Yeah, I'm very well. Obviously, to start with, Happy New Year to both of you. And, you know, thanks ever so much for, for having me on. You're operating in Asia is such a broad conversation piece at the moment. There's so much going on in the world. So I'm delighted to come on and, and hopefully add some colour and context to some of those challenges. Fantastic. Well, it's lovely to have you. And kicking off the new year, you know, um, we, we are thinking of new topics, new geographies. And, uh, uh, you know, one of them is... Uh, quote unquote Asia. Now, obviously, massive, massive geo, but uh, generally, I think we're talking more East Asia rather than South Asia in this. So, you know, why are we talking about this anyway? What's the problem we're trying to solve uh, by asking this question on on a podcast such as this? It's an it's an interesting question because Asia is front of mind on a number of disciplines, whether it be you know, we've just come out of the COVID pandemic, you know, where a large amount of our PPE supplies coming into Europe were, were emanating from, you know, you look at Singapore being the, the hub of, of rubber and rubber gloves and Southeast Asia. And, you know, we, as a firm headquartered in Hong Kong, we were phenomenally busy during that period, doing a lot of PPE due diligence and supporting clients, bringing product into the country, you know, and you, you strip that back, you've then got the geopolitical tensions, which exist between obviously more broadly China and America, uh, you've got the issues then with with Russia and India and the different relationships that are being made. Uh, you've got the tensions around the development of AUKUS um, with the Australian government, the UK and America, and the development of a new submarine capability for for, Austra for Australia. What does that mean uh, for the Chinese? There is so much going on in the world, but but more importantly, China is a significantly important player in global development. It's a significant important player in product. You know, we rely heavily on that infrastructure to support some of the world's biggest industries. Uh, and it's not going anywhere. And I think it's important that we recognize that and we support clients both in and out of the jurisdiction in any way which where we can. But um, obviously it, be, it would be remiss of us not to acknowledge the, the tensions which exist uh, among administrations in terms of often um, the intelligence community worries about in terms of the sharing of information and data. Absolutely, yes. And, and those geopolitical... Uh, questions will be front of mind, especially coming into 2024. Um, but taking a, a step back, uh, obviously, we're very pleased to have you uh, on the podcast. But, but where does your passion uh, for this uh, come from? 
A brilliant question. So I come from a very classical policing background, law enforcement, investigations. I grew up in southeast London. Uh, I emigrated to Australia in 2002. I spent 17 years living in Australia. I must admit it's a beautiful country. I, I spent most of my professional life working in the outback of uh, rural communities in Australia with indigenous communities and left policing in 2016 to take part in Australia's Turn Back the Boats process, Operation Sovereign Borders. I worked on an island called Nauru in the Marshall Islands, which um, may be uh, a recognisable name to some of our listeners who often do asset tracing of vessels and bits and pieces in that jurisdiction. Um, so after leading a professional standards team for a couple of years, I set up my own small private practice, which if I wind the clock forward, was bought out by Ion Asia, as you said, uh, headquartered in Hong Kong. Uh, and my, my life has become about supporting um, the rich, the famous, the publicly well-known in, in navigating often some of the biggest issues that they face both privately and commercially. Um, and, and that does involve areas such as kidnap and ransom, blackmail, due diligence, you know, everything from buying homes and, and setting up teams, which can include executive protection teams and security drivers. Um, so for me, it's become a, a whole new world of which the foundations were built on my policing career. But uh, and the passion for that is just delivering a service um, and, a, and a commitment to supporting families at some of their darkest times. You know, it's uh, it's a, it's an absolute honor to do so. Fantastic. Just, I think many people can relate to it. Yeah, yeah, Sean. Yeah, no, just following on from that question there, when you're talking about protecting different families and things like that. I've never operated in China, but I know the rules will be very different over there to what it is in the UK and in different countries. So what, what can that actual protect? I say protectors come from the UK to go and operate in China. What can they actually do and what, what is involved in that? Yeah, so it is a very different landscape. You're very right. Um, and first and foremost, most of the, the teams that reach out to us for support in Asia is to get good operatives on the ground that know the lay of the land. China is a huge country, as we know. Um, so it's important that you've got support teams that are in place in terms of uh, those support teams not being armed uh, is, is one big facet there. How are you going to move people around in vehicles? You, you've got to remember that, obviously, if you've got people coming in that are a very high profile, what are you going to be doing with their technology, their mobile phones, their laptops? How are they going to be moving about? Where are they going to be having their meetings? All of that is, is critically important. Often we find executive protection teams moving around VIPs instructing local teams to help not only with the local knowledge and the geographical aspects of that, but equally relying on organisations like ourselves to provide some sort of um, support and framework around often um, dispelling a few myths and concerns and worries around sort of data protection of their principles uh, and the espionage which may or may not exist. You know, and, and, and for this goes for everywhere around the world. It's not just siloed particularly to Asia. I would suggest any executive that's traveling around the world is always very mindful of their own personal information, the meetings they're having, the rooms they're sitting in, and, and, the, and the opportunities that exist for people to listen in on those meetings. That's generally the biggest worry that gets presented to us. Um, so obviously, we, we put things into place to support executives and executive protection teams with that. Uh, but often you find, you know, the licensing requirements around that is important to have local licensed uh, security operatives on the ground. Uh, and, and there is nothing, there is no greater challenge than, and this, again, this is not exclusive to China or, or Hong Kong or Singapore, but culture is everything. And understanding la local language, having conversations, and if, if, if a problem does ensue, being able to speak to somebody that knows the language and is able to diffuse the situation is far greater and far opportunistic than going in there thinking, 
we'll be fine. There's no problems. We don't need any local help because we don't trust it. Uh, I often find whether even if you're traveling in South America, Southeast Asia or Africa, that that can get you into hot water very, very quickly. So for us, for me personally, the cultural challenges are the biggest ones that face often naive and if I could even bravely say slightly arrogant executive protection teams that come from outside the jurisdiction thinking that they know best. They do in terms of moving and facilitating travel and forward planning, but ultimately when you hit the ground and you're interacting with others, that's when challenges can arise in terms of getting a smooth transition from point A to point B. I think you're absolutely right. I think I've never operated over there, but I am very conscious of, I've operated all over the world, I've sent teams all over the world, and what you said there, you know, you might have some arrogant teams that come in that know it all and you know, we're taking charge of this. And I think that's the wrong attitude to have wherever you go because exactly what you said, the culture, the value. It's great having someone who speaks the language, someone that's out there that knows your culture, has your values, but also you can lean on to them for the support and they'll make everything a whole lot smoother for your visit, for the visit of your executive. And you've just got to lean on them local national teams, right? I agree with you. And, and often those logistics can be some of the biggest challenges that we face when we're wanting to move clients around the world. And they rely on us for that, you know, that easy, smooth transition and the facilitation of transport and knowing that they've got a very strong team behind them that, that knows the lay of the land. And I'm not saying that the people that you interact with on the ground are going to have direct contact with your principal. That will never be the case. But you need that in between that buffer so that he has the reliability of that small team around him, enclosing that bubble outside that our trusted teams that people reach out to us for to, to formulate who can help and guide you through, you know, whatever project you're moving through in terms of the country and its location. But, you know, in, importantly, it is, it is, it can be challenging moving around some of these countries in terms of, you know, um, the, the knowledge and the questions which can come from flying into certain jurisdictions, no different to flying into the Middle East, if I'm honest, but, um, but yeah, culture and knowledge for me and local knowledge is critically important to the success of any deployment. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's the local nationals, that's your force multiplier. And I think you alluded to on the first, when you first started speaking, that maybe they don't have the skills that an expat security professional has that's coming into the country. However, they do have the lay of the land, the knowledge, know the culture. So that coupled up with your knowledge and experience, you know, it just goes together, right? Totally agree with you. I'd be interested in then, you know, just, just thinking about it, you talk about local expertise, is there a thriving local EP scene uh, in China or, or or Asia? Is 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 that a thing? Like, would would we see uh, EP forums like we have uh, here, but 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 there, um, or or is it? Does it look different? No, I, I think it's it's very much the same. There's still a demand and a need for executive protection. You know, if you look at Hong Kong, you know there, and you look at Singapore, China, or Japan. There are still OCGs, organised crime groups that exist. There are still bad actors that seek to do harm to others. And, you know, uh, there is Asia is not immune to that. So I think the threat and risk picture for ultra high net worth clients very much is front of mind. And obviously that comes with security of not only a principal, but their most important assets, which could be husbands and wives and children. So, you know, the, the, the security protocols that we see in the Western world are often reflected uh, in a culture within Asia, uh, more predominantly, because and, and and I think the Western way of of executive protection is often seen as the gold standard. 
you know, if we look at the successes, if we look at it from the investigative perspective, you know, you look at the Metropolitan Police, their investigative model has been looked to as the gold standard for many, many years. That's no different in terms of the EP world in Asia. And you see countless teams that exist and countless security measures. Like during the Olympics, we've provided a number of security drivers to support high net worth individuals. We've supported sporting brands and media outlets. Just move around. So it is. It's a very professional industry. It's one that um, often looks to the West for guidance on new techniques and new training capabilities. But equally, um, you know, with that, is, as I've said, is, is the cultural piece, which you, which you can't uh, turn away from. But, yeah, so I, I think that the culture does exist of a professional outfit, very much so. It may be slightly different to what we're used to, but it certainly exists. And, and I guess maybe this is something you won't know because you're very high level, very strategic. But it would be nice. I'll just throw it out there. It would be nice to know how anybody could assess the capabilities of a local expert like maybe they went to a certain college maybe they've i don't know they've they can guarantee they were in the special forces or something i don't know like i just wonder if they haven't been to all the uk us south african type training schools mm. how do we know I, I often the devil is in the detail and you know when we look at sort of our western ep operatives whether they've done a ronin course in south africa whether they've done a G4S course here in the UK, often I don't think it takes too long to understand what a person's capability is when you start answering questions as to what they think looks like a good forward plan. You know, could you provide us some maybe some historical planning you've done as to what you look what 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 you think looks like a good transportation uh, network for our client to get from point A to point B? And once you start looking at the detail, once you start looking at the plans and the backup plans. If they're not there or they don't have the detail, then one then can start questioning the validity or you know the capabilities of an individual. And I don't think as 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 operatives and as strategic thinkers, we should ever rely on those plans. You know, you're only as strong as your weakest person. We've always got to have the due diligence and the mindset and and and, and raise that bar for people to reach in terms of what our expectations are. Because often expectations are the hardest thing to deliver upon. As long as we make those from the outset of what we expect from our people, what qualifications we want to have in terms of first aid and what level of first aid response that may be, because obviously there are a myriad of those that can be accepted as a standard across the industry. Um, it's uh, We've it, also got to remember, you know, a lot of Western EP operatives either come from that policing background or they come from a very strong military background, whether it be a Marine, whether it be a para, um, whether it be one in, in the specialised units. And with that comes a high level of resilience, uh, a high level of um, a risk averse and, and, and very risk savvy, understanding what's out there and asking countless questions. Um, the Asian culture is not combative by very nature, very friendly, very open, very warm. And sometimes um, that can be confused with a, with, a, with a tad of complacency. And complacency is what is what, what can be the biggest risk to our clients when moving around the world. Uh, you know, as we say, you train hard and fight easy. So I, I think it comes around expectations. It comes around discipline. And, and in terms of the qualifications and experience of the individuals you're hiring, um, there are a number of forums and groups and experts like us that have worked with a myriad of different companies where we know the good, the bad and the indifferent because it exists in every industry and exists in every country. There'll be people that provide the gold service that say they do and actually they don't. It's just doing your due diligence and knowing what your expectations are and, and making sure they can deliver on those. Yeah, I think it's all down to the due diligence, right? And there's, there's so many companies who 
they see an opportunity and they, you know, they, they sniff some some money and they just say, yeah, we can provide that. And they'll be phoning in a black, you know, they won't even have a black book, a network of contacts in these different countries. They'll just go on Google and find someone. Yes, I can do that task. And they take them on. And it's just, it's crazy, right? Because you're just opening yourself up, your reputation. If the task goes wrong, um, you know, you can lose yourself a whole boatload of business. So you've got to have that. If you don't have a network of contacts, that's fine. You can reach out to someone who you know who, who operates in that country can and actually give you that advice. You can pay for that advice. You know, yeah, we use this company, they provide vehicles, security operators, they're all vetted, insured, whatever it may be. But when you're doing it on a out on a whim without carrying out any due diligence, you just open yourself up for a world of hurt. There is nothing more powerful than a recommendation of someone that has been tried and tested. Uh, and I think, you know, you know, we've been in Hong Kong now for more than 20 years, uh, countless successful operations. And we've learned a lot of lessons along the way. Anybody who says they haven't is telling a huge porky pie. And I think that experience, that knowledge, those expertise is what people, you know, I, I don't sit in front of clients and tell them I can solve all the problems around the world. But in my period of time in the private sector, one of our greatest assets is our networks. And, and, and most of our networks extend into most regions. I don't certainly reach out to clients and say, I'm an expert around the world. Our remit is supporting clients across Asia, and we stay honest to that. And I think that honesty and that genuine ability to provide sound counsel is what keeps EP teams and principals out of harm's way. Absolutely. And so going going back, going back, one of the things, and you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really loath to use the COVID word, uh, because every time we say it, people go, oh, no, not that again. Um, but, it, you know, it would be interesting to, to to understand how your work has has changed through it and, mm -hmm. and, and after it. Um, you know, local partners came and went in in, in much of the world and uh, a lot of people had to rebuild the black book in a way. Um, how, 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 how was that period, quote unquote, uh, for you? So the last five years for Asia and more specifically for Hong Kong and China and Singapore and other countries that were affected by COVID. Uh, Hong Kong has had the added complications of, um, of civil unrest that we saw for quite a large period of time. There's obviously been changes significantly in the national security law, which has been implemented into Hong Kong. Um, and of course, that's seen changes. Um, it would be um, disingenuous to say otherwise. Uh, and, and you're right, you know, during that period of instability and unsettlement around the world, we saw a lot of companies and organisations that weren't able to ride that storm disappear. And they're either starting from scratch or they've moved out of the industry completely. Uh, some have moved out of the region completely because they don't see it as the future business hub. You know, a lot of people are looking at Singapore, a lot of people are looking at Dubai. But, you know, um, Singapore is a fantastic city, but it doesn't, you know, it doesn't do, for instance, when you look at the financial markets, it doesn't do the trading volumes that Hong Kong does. Our business is huge on the pre-IPO due diligence markets. We do a lot of that work for uh, both Chinese and foreign companies enlisting into the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So generally speaking, you look at the financial markets, it paints a, a, a very interesting picture as the rest of the economy of a region. You know, Hong Kong is is still coming back. It's starting to bustle. It's it's there's obviously I think it's no secret that it's probably a changed landscape in the last couple of years, but it's certainly coming back slowly but surely. But there's 
uh, no two ways about it, that the pandemic and the way that different administrations handled its response around the world had a significant impact in the commerciality and the ability for people to operate. Now, when you look at in, in our world, in security risk management, and particularly in executive protection, clients weren't moving. There was no need for there, for there to be that um, granular, detailed, facilitated movement because they weren't traveling anywhere. They were either bedded down in Dubai, they were bedded down at Hong Kong, in Singapore, in London, and they weren't moving anywhere. So the industry kind of came to a grinding halt, whereas you had these these vast operations going on around the world, moving principles in, in planes and, and, and jets to various locations. Suddenly, all you've got is an RST team, a residential security team, just sitting there, standing a post for eight hours a day, which significantly affected the bottom line of some of the biggest companies around the world. And those biggest companies carry the highest threshold of salaries, et cetera. So as a smaller private company as we are, um, with you know 55 employees on the books around the world, I suppose we're able to ride that storm. And we've ridden many storms. And we, you know, I think we're one of the success stories in terms of our resilience during um, those times of sort of, I call them austerity or crisis. Um, we've pivoted. And I think a lot of companies did have to pivot in terms of the services that they were providing their clients. You know, I've always believed that if you pigeonhole yourself into one area, if that area ever collapses, your business model is over overnight. So, we, you know, we moved, you know, we, we certainly pivoted and we got through it. But, you know, the landscape has changed and we've changed with it. Um, but I certainly believe that the work, um, although not quite what it was pre-pandemic levels, will come back. It may just take 18 months, two years. It's interesting hearing you talk about COVID because in, in the UK, it's so very different to China. But exactly what you said, you know, lots of businesses really struggle. Lots of businesses closed down. And I was one of the fortunate ones like yourself where my, my business actually went through the roof and, you know, turnover went up exponentially during COVID times. But I did experience those clients that immediately let people go. I, mm. I wanted them to go because they had health concerns and they wanted no one around the family. But I was very fortunate with one of my major clients. They thought oppositely where they thought, right, I want bigger bubbles around my family. And when the security operators come in to rotate we need to create a bubble for them so they went to the bubble until they're clear the other person can't leave so literally the the staff that i had doubled overnight and that was throughout the period of COVID. so it was amazing but it, it, what you said about pigeonholing yourself into a particular space as well so i've experienced the downside as well so with my security business my main clients was russian oligarchs and so whilst the business sold through COVID, it took a huge hit during what's going on with the current crisis, where mm. people went each client one by one mm. the sanctions. So you're definitely right. You need to kind of look outside of what you're currently doing. And because if you're relying on that one golden goose client, you haven't looked outside of that, it can really hurt your business, right? One of the significant differences, I think, also between um, the two jurisdictions, if we look at more specifically Hong Kong, is that you know, here in the UK, often our high net worth individuals and our ultra high net worth individuals, you know, have got large stately properties. They're on acreage. They're out in Oxford. You know, they're out in Surrey in big lead properties, which require significant infrastructure to make sure that they're safe and secure. Whereas in Hong Kong, you know, the geographical footprint of the city itself is actually quite small. So, you know, so you look at the need um, uh, for expansive security teams and night patrols and maybe dog handlers, whatever the case may be, is significantly reduced in terms of, you know, because a lot of 
Hong Kongers like to travel around the world to transact, to do their business. So when COVID did hit, they very much um, just shut the doors, maintained what they had. There was a little bit of panic in terms of people being made redundant because nobody knew what the future held for anybody. Um, so it wasn't, it was a very interesting period to try and navigate through, but you know, we're out the other side of it now and, um, yeah, seeing some, um, some interesting work come through the doors. So now we're out of COVID and, you know, we have different security companies that maybe look at their work in Asia. Do you still see, or should Hong Kong still be seen as a hub or gateway into Asia for these companies looking to operate out there? Yeah, without doubt. You know, nobody, it would be foolhardy for anybody to write Hong Kong off. Uh, you know, Hong Kong is a thriving city. Uh, there is plenty going on there. I was only there a, a number of months ago in a professional capacity for a, you know supporting a, a client with a with a, a court matter, and and you know the city is alive and buzzing. You know it may not be what it was pre-pandemic levels, but you know I, I don't think anywhere is. You know we live in this new virtual world where we're prepared to accept meeting each other virtually. You know. Um, which everyone is sort of acclimatized to. There's a there is a greater demand uh, for individuals to work from home, which I think which will transition into our lives in terms of our principals, our families spending more time in the family home and not having to go to the office as much. Um, you know, we've got clients who have large assets in uh, Hong Kong. They also have assets such as you know football clubs and other sporting entities around the world, which they want to travel to. Um, and I, yeah, I, I think it would be remiss of anyone to um, to think that Hong Kong is never it, it is not a bustling hub as it is. It very much is, and and you actually find the family offices and the high net earth and the ultra high net earth individuals that departed Hong Kong during the pandemic and during the public disorder are actually now starting to come back. There are tax incentives, you know, financial incentives for those family offices to relocate and come back into the Hong Kong market. And we're starting to see big deals come through in terms of the financial markets, the big M&A stuff coming through. And with that brings a lot of money, a lot of individuals who still think Hong Kong is a great place to live and work and do business. So I would I would suggest uh, that I certainly wouldn't dive in it with both feet. I would be cautious. Uh, and I would certainly want to understand where you want to pivot yourself, um, in, you know, but um, certainly it's um, somewhere to consider. So I guess this, this kind of, comes full circle around to our, our protected com community which yes i mean we do have listeners from asia we do um and so we're, we're very happy to have have you listener from asia on that's that's great news but we do have uh a lot from uh the states north america uh europe uk um as as, as well as some you know middle east and africa um what what should they do do, do they all have to start learning Chinese is, is probably the initial question they, uh, they, they, they come up with, which I think is, is quite a leap, right? Um, before, before leaping to that, um, what, what kind of skill sets do, do you think they should really develop? Well, I think the skill set should be no different to where you treat any other location or jurisdiction, you know, be it Russia, the Middle East or anywhere else, you know, it would be remiss and, and and it would be naive not to have somebody in your team that understands the culture, because obviously, as part of every executive protection team should be some form of intelligence analyst who's able to uh, uh, point or if you have a, an intelligence provider, you know, there are many out there, you know, we, are, we suppose we could consider us as one of those in terms of feeding information as sort of, you know, um, the, the current threat and risk situation, you know, which may exist in any particular region, whether it be the geopolitical risk or otherwise. Um, you know, it's important to have 
the team around you which can present the best outcome. Now, if you're going to be spending an awful lot of time in Asia and you're going to be spending an awful lot of time in Hong Kong and China, well, then it would be advantageous to have someone who can speak Cantonese or Mandarin on the team, you know, so that you're, you've got somebody internal who you vetted, who you know their capabilities, they understand the client's challenges, that threat and risk picture, which is ever-evolving, which obviously we make and form our decisions off the back of. Um, because often, you know, if, if you're going to be reaching out to contractor after contractor, that, you know, the, the, again, the expectations and the product which may follow from that may differ. So I think it raises, on a, it, it, I, I very much base this on a case-by-case -case scenario. If we're going to be spending an awful lot of time in the Middle East with a client, say, whether it be Saudi, Qatar, or Dubai, and I, and I want someone who, can, who understands the region, can speak Arabic, and, and understands the challenges and what we can and can't do, well, then I'll appoint somebody within the team if there's the budget that exists to support that to make sure the operation is a success. What I often find is, is that budgets and, and, and security is the last thing that people think about. And it's often constrained and we try and do things on a shoestring and we pay peanuts and we expect a very high level of service. And that just doesn't happen. And often what frustrates me, and I think it frustrates a lot of the industry, is often it's a race to the bottom in terms of sort of what is the cheapest that we can go on this is what can we get away with? And then suddenly if a fight once the balloon pops and, 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 and the EPIRB's activated as a crisis, how did we end up here? And I think you've just got to remember sort of what is what is your objective? How can you do it? Yes, as conservative as you possibly can, but don't do things on a shoestring because you'll get yourself into trouble. And, you know, you, prevention is far better than cure, you know. And for those of us in the risk space, you know, um, often that's the hardest sell to not the executives, not to the principal, but those advising them because, the, you know, it's not cheap, this stuff to keep people safe. Let's be honest with ourselves. It isn't cheap. But if we're prepared to spend hundreds of millions of pounds on private jets and fast cars and big houses, I think we ought to, we, we owe those things and the individuals in them a right to protect them and look after them properly. And that does come at a cost. And, and, and that speaks to including an analyst in the team. Uh, because mm. because um, someone once mentioned, and I like this uh, this image, that maybe a decade ago, the let's say French language uh, analyst was the grad student you randomly brought along for your trip through Africa. And, you know, I, I, it can't be that haphazard. Um, it, it needs to be, it needs to be uh, planned out. However, um, let, let me flip it. So we're talking about all these opportunities, but is it possible that colleagues from a Western uh, environment may find that they are not welcomed in certain jurisdictions, it, it could work against them. It could attract unwanted attention in, in certain countries. Um, it, you know, it would be unfair not to, to look at that side of the, the scales as well. Um, you, you know, are, are there any jurisdictions where actually it's, it's not good to rock up with your amazing SF background? Um, I, I think you've always got to be mindful of the, you know, I recently operated in Southeast Asia in Cambodia. Um, where there is arguably quite extensive amounts of corruption uh, at all levels in terms of, sadly, uh, law enforcement agencies that operate there. You know, if you're pulled over for speeding, you know, you can pay your way out of trouble, um, which is troubling. But I, I think there are moves to try and improve that. Um, there is always a risk. The greatest risk is going to be your principal and what he or she does, their line of business and how that is perceived. Um, and, and with that, what can add difficulties is 
if you've got an EP team and you've got individuals that are coming in who come from backgrounds that um, could be perceived as ones that were formerly maybe a threat to that particular jurisdiction, I'm talking maybe people who are in the intelligence community and have now moved into the EP world, I would suggest that presents a risk. It presents a risk to the individual traveling, particularly into jurisdictions where there could be issues with regards to that. I think we've always got to be mindful of the information that we allow to go onto social media about ourselves and our professional backgrounds. Um, I often find a less is more approach is far more advantageous than telling the world that you did used to work in that foreign office um, because these things are checked upon and, uh, and, and that stuff can cause you a, a headache. So if you don't want people to know about it, don't put it on the internet is, is, is something, you know, I call it um, with my staff defensive due diligence. And the art of defensive due diligence is knowing how much information is out there on you. And if you don't want people to know about it, you don't want people to see about it, don't put it up there. And we spend a lot of our time now. One of the greatest challenges that I find that we do for our clients is actually removing content off the internet. They didn't realize, and, and, and this, and, and for our print, it's not so much our principles who are still of an age where the internet and social media is a bit of a foreign beast, which they play with, but they're not immersed with. But their children and their grandchildren, they're on Snapchat, they're on Instagram, they're on TikTok. Those challenges and the threats, the information they put on there poses the greatest challenges to security staff and to the principals themselves. And we spend 90% of our time managing and understanding what that content can do for the threat and risk of the entire team, not just the principal, but the entire team traveling. Um, and we are always counseling, not only our own teams, but our principals and educating as to what does it mean if we post this? And we've seen plenty of examples of footballers and other celebrities and ultra high individuals posting their holidays abroad whilst their mansion in Chelsea is totally absent. And suddenly, before you know it, you've got a significant break in with a large amount of jewellery stolen and other bits and pieces. So in terms of going back to your question, in terms of the travel and the risk, yes, there are risks that I think can uh, can exist but i think those can be managed in terms of what is known about you on the internet and what you're prepared to put out there if you make yourself out to be uh, the next um, james bond 007 flying through windows and driving aston martins i think you will be perceived as a bit of a risk you know who is this individual are you really an executive protection specialist are you some sort of decoy and and, and and we do that for every jurisdiction we're traveling into you know i i, I think we've got to be very open to those challenges yeah, and, and, and maybe that's where a non-US uh, workforce could be handy because after the Office of Personnel Management uh, data leak, uh, mm. I think uh, many US uh, personnel have just gone, oh, whatever, I'll just put it all on LinkedIn. Um, yeah. So... And maybe but that's, that's a very American thing to do, though. Like, you know, we work with some tremendous American protection teams. You know, I was recently in Washington, D.C. at an OSAC conference, the annual OSAC conference, which is always remarkable to attend. You meet many, many people. But you know, Americans are quite rightly very proud of their backgrounds and increase. So the British. But I just don't think we shout about it as much as probably our American colleagues do. I think that's just a cultural thing. It's not a it's not a bad thing, but it does come with consequences. Yeah, no, absolutely. With very different, you know, great same experience. Work some great American people, great British people. But yeah, the Americans definitely show you know, put themselves out there a lot more. And it, it, I think it's a what's the word? I don't know. I, I guess over here it's it's not British <laughs> to be putting yourself out there. But um, yeah, no, interesting. But anyway, so security companies that are looking to work out in Asia. Um, what sort of opportunities are out there at the moment, aside from EP? Is it investigations, 
family disputes, what sort of opportunities do you see out there now for companies looking to operate out there? Yeah, well, I, I, you know, there's a whole raft of opportunities that exist in terms of whether you're wanting to support in the private sector with whether family offices or, or private individuals um, or on the commercial front, whether you're wanting to look after big commercial brands that have challenges with brand protection issues uh, across Asia, whether, you know, their products are being copied and being sold in the Middle East. So, you know, there's a variety of different things. The trends at the moment for us um, is... Uh, the financial instability of the world has led to a lot of clients wanting to look under rocks and, and to start looking into bad performing investments and, and the individuals and the assets and the money flow, because we're not in, we're not at a time of great levels of investment. You know, a lot of people are, are still, I think, holding tight in terms of just wanting to see how the next 12, 18 months, two years pans out. Um, you know, I've been running quite a large kidnapping investigation for the past couple of years now, which is publicly published in uh, an Indian uh, Antiguan citizen billionaire was kidnapped uh, from Antigua a couple of years ago. So I had to move an EP team very quickly down into that jurisdiction to support him and his family. Um, that So we, we, we're doing a lot of private client risk and reputation work. As I said before, a lot of people realizing that what they put on the Internet is there for life. Uh, a lot of people are starting to realize that there is this thing called the Wayback Machine, which is archiving pages and pages of the Internet, which means it's becoming harder to remove content off the Internet, um, whether you do a right to be forgotten or otherwise. So we're doing a lot of those assessments, making a lot of applications. Um, so, yeah, I, you know, the, the beauty of our of our industry, Sean and Fellam, is, is it's so diverse and there are so many different opportunities for us all to pursue, whether it be in the physical security world. You know, a lot of our clients, you may see this, are becoming inherently approached, you know, cyber-related crime is on the, on the rise. Um, here in the UK, we have a policing service which sadly is not meeting the needs and expectations of communities. So we have a, a, a resurgence of clients wanting to have investigations which would ordinarily be done by the police. Um, we're seeing that that's not just a local thing, that's a global thing, you know, like we're seeing that in Hong Kong. Um, so there are many, many different opportunities. Um, but along with that is a, is a world which is very unstable with, you know, two very big conflicts underway at the moment and which is affecting global supply chains. Uh, and, you know, a lot of those supply chains are supported by clients with big business and, and, and it's hurting them. So we're um, also trying to, to navigate those issues. But, yeah, no, plenty of opportunities, Sean. Yeah, it's good because I think you know a lot of businesses, small businesses particularly, where they only look in, in you know one dimensional. Mm. Provide EP, that's what I do, and that's purely all you look at. And I think you have to look outside, left and right, because there is other opportunities there, and you know and that's through building relationships with other people. You don't have to have the whole slice of the pie. You can make relationships, get referrals, all of that sort of thing, and start growing your business down these different channels. Right, we, you know. Whether it's through, you know, if you're in with family offices and you're, you're providing the EP, it may be, you know, do you want to carry, we've got an investigation capacity as well, or we provide K9, whatever it may be, the bigger your network of professionals and that adds to your capabilities, it gives you more options, right? And that's, it's no different around the world. But one, one thing that we're inherently bad at doing when we leave government service and this is the military it's law enforcement it's all of that is we're, we're often remiss at understanding that our skill sets are very transferable and we don't have to pigeonhole ourselves just into one thing because we knew how to carry a gun or we knew how to investigate you know one of my greatest loves is doing reputational work now supporting clients in managing the media developing relationships with journalists 
you know, giving clients the opportunity to own some of the narrative that gets pasted out onto, you know, big news sites, Bloomberg, The Times, Telegraph, you know, The Daily Mail. You say, you know, it never be, I always try to tell people that come to me, never be short-sighted and upskilling yourself and investing in your own capabilities, whether that's understanding a subject that you've never touched before. I'm currently studying counterterrorism. It's not something I did in my policing career, but I do a lot of TV work now. Um, you may or may have not seen me on, on a couple of TV programs. I do a lot of commentary on the radio, and I want to better educate myself on so I can provide better articulated viewpoints from a, from a, from a standing that people will respect. So, yeah, one of the things is that I think we always sell ourselves short. We, we, you know, we've, we've all come from incredible backgrounds, and we, and we can diverse. we just got to remember we can. Yeah, I think that's both as individuals and as a business because Correct. I've always traditionally, as an individual, you know, I've invested in myself, my personal development, and I've kind of what I, the formula I set for myself as a minimum was I'd invest 10% of my take home of the year in personal development. So if you make you know, 80 grand, I put in eight grand, whatever it may be. And as a business, when I set up the business, it's been no different where I've, either it's investing in my staff or it's investing in, you know, getting different accreditations or whatever it may be, adding different capabilities to you or your business. If you don't invest in yourself or your business, then you know, you're never going to grow and someone else is going to come in, step in and they're going to take what could be rightfully yours. You know, the opportunity yeah. is that you miss out by not developing yourself. You're going to miss out on so, so much money's left on the table. So, yeah, absolutely. You have to invest in yourself, your business, um, just to progress and you know, keep yourself top of that game. Maybe learn Cantonese. <laughs> yeah, there you go. Maybe. I think that, you know, when some people listen to me, they say you can't even speak English, but that's <laughs> so. I think Cantonese might be beyond my, my capabilities, but <laughs> that's no, just but a Geordie, with, Geordie with, twang. With all with all these things, you know, it's it's an appreciative, it's an appreciation for regional accents. Um, I, I, you know, you're not supposed to do an accent, but to appreciate it, just to to, to show a little bit of cultural nuance, even within the UK, it works. So it'll it'll one hundred percent work to uh, learn. Um, is it Kung Hei Fat Choi is the Cantonese mm. version of mm. Happy New Year? Correct. A little thing, little thing, um, can can go a long way. And and whether that needs to be a formal course, you know, formal course on small talk, I don't know. Um, but but what's next for you, Oliver? You said you're um on TV. I know you've got a you know podcasts and and uh, articles and so on. What what what's coming up? Where can we next find you? Yeah, it's, so I ha I still have a huge love for law enforcement and policing. You know, I, I, I um, my my veins my veins run blue and blue through, and and whatever I can do to support my colleagues on the front line of policing, I do. As you say, I have a podcast, Protect and Serve, which is just interviewing colleagues and exploring their incredible careers in policing because I think they're they're fascinating and 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 need to be heard because often we don't. Good police news stories don't sell papers. Only the bad ones do. Only the scandals do. And and I just, you know, for it was so articulately put just before Christmas by a former borough commander, John Sutherland, who says, "For every one story you hear of bad, I can tell you of five hundred good ones." And and all we ask for in the media is just balance. And quite often we don't get that balance. So I I come from a place of love in wanting to provide that balance and support for the front line. Um, you know, our business is growing. You know, I have a, a great team here in London now. My colleague in New York's team is, is growing. We've had a great 12 months across the globe, you know, and uh, we're looking just to keep expanding that and developing our 
our you know our clients and our community base across the UK, EMEA and America, um, supporting clients with the risk and challenges in and out of Asia. Um, but uh, yeah, no, and taking part in in these sort of podcasts with uh, great people like yourselves um, gives us a great opportunity to share ideas. I think sometimes we can be a little bit insular and scared to share ideas, even um, when 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 all it does really, in my in my opinion is rise the bar of um, professionalism amongst us all and, and accountability and, and, and answering questions that often we, we, we can be too scared to answer. But, uh, but thank you so much for the opportunity. I very much do appreciate it. Our pleasure. Well, um, you know, I appreciate Asia, massive topic, massive area, massive geo. I know we're kind of predominantly looking at uh, East Asia uh, in, 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 in this podcast, but I, but I hope it will inspire some people to consider a task out there consider mm. a, a career out there or maybe consider welcoming colleagues uh, from the region to, uh, to to their region maybe that's maybe that's a new year's hope that we can uh, cross pollinate a bit more the black book as sean uh, said so oliver thanks very much um from sean west and myself this has been another fantastic edition of the circuit magazine podcast Well, thank you very much, Oliver, for, you know, lifting the curtain, uh, telling us what we need to know about Asia, predominantly East Asia, you know, China, Hong Kong and uh, the wider region. Um, Sean, fun topic to start the new year with. What did you take away from today's session? Well, I really enjoyed it. I think, you know, it dispelled a lot of myths that if, if you don't have a you know a background of what operating out there and the opportunities that are there, um, how, do you, how do you go about getting them? What, what are these opportunities? And I think just listening to him, and you, and you can see there are opportunities and they're not beyond reach. Um, it's just exactly what you said as well, Callum. You know, you, you have to do a little bit of research, a little bit of background, and you, know, you, you can set yourself up and get in some collaborations. And certainly speaking with people like, Oliver and you know we, we have other people within our network who do operate out there I wouldn't go out there blind you have to use these people because they have the experience the boots on the ground and, and the local knowledge so yeah no, it's great to have to have the eyes opened by someone who's has the knowledge and experience out there and I think it's certainly a more contemporary or dare I say relevant approach to this because again you know when we were talking about working in Africa, people said, ah, we're definitely going to bump into colleagues from Asia someday. Yeah, some people do bump into them, but it's not, is it relevant? It's not as relevant to your career because they keep themselves much of the time. And, and, and so what's more relevant is where you can go and operate in Asia or where you can welcome Asian delegations to your country. Uh, I think, I think there's a much more, um, mercantile aspect to that then oh no uh the world we're going to bump into you know loads of operators and we don't know what each other are saying that's that's not quite what we're looking at is it no i, I think you know wherever wherever we go in the world it's just very different where you know a lot of what i don't know what the percentages of the world that speaks english but it's a huge amount right and we we get away with English people will be very lazy in learning the languages. But I think once you go to like China, you have to utilize these local nationals. You just have to because it's, 
the, the barrier there in languages is huge. It's a different alphabet, different the whole work. So, yeah, no, I think you're, you're totally right. You're not going to be out of your depth. It's just working with local nationals who have that knowledge, values, culture of how to operate out there. And also, you need to find out where you can add value. Otherwise, why are you there, right? So yeah. it could be investigations. It could be that you've got your fingers in different, you know, geographic pies. Um, could be that you just have the right visas. Um, yeah, and I think I think Oliver alluded to that as well. You know, when you're going in there as an expat, you may well be the ones that are the more highly trained. Oh, you are the ones that's more highly trained, specialised in the particular area that you're going there. Because if you weren't, you would be using individuals from that country so if you've got that higher level of training you're still you know you're still going to go out there and you're going to be in charge of your principal and the task and the operation it's moving the parts you know like playing chess you're there with the local nationals who are there in support of your operation um and i think it's, it's, it's the same the world over you know wherever you operate i think it's, it's the same model um you need to use these local companies just to dispel that knowledge and language barrier and then my favorite you know episode of the second magazine podcast to hark harken back to is the one with kenji okamoto before the tokyo olympics it's, it's a bit of a stuck record now but it, it was such a good uh session we were you know very fortunate to have him on uh he explained that in his geography of japan force use of force is not possible in fact, touching anybody is really not possible uh in any way so it's about facilitation and that brings maybe the more modern protector to the fore, who maybe has that expertise. Mm -hmm. You know, things like this, this is where if you don't have the knowledge and experience or the guidance from someone who has the knowledge out there, where if you're going out there blind as a protector, you can drop yourself, you get yourself into some real trouble if you, if you don't know the, the culture out there and what is allowed and what's not allowed. So again, this is why we have to engage with people who do have that knowledge and experience in these countries i like it well what's uh what's what's next for you sean i know the new year has started with a bang and uh you know we, we, we're all getting going but uh but what, what what what's happening in your life what's next I, I think for me it's you know obviously i've had a not a change in career but um a lot of change where i'm doing right now i'm working on growing my repertoire of tools to help businesses in the security industry to you know grow their capabilities, grow their client lists. So I'm engaging on a lot of personal development to grow the already expansive experience and knowledge that I have um, to bring more tools, frameworks that I can implement and use with the clients that I work with. So January and February is a lot of personal development for me. Um, and yeah, no, I'm, I'm really looking forward to your event as well because, you know, I like coming down to the capital again because I don't spend as much time down there as what I have previously. So it's always great to hook up with, you know, and I'll work my diary around it where I'll have several meetings before the event, during the event, after the event. And it's just a great place, great hope to meet. Well, I'm I'm very much looking forward to it. Uh, 25th of, uh, of January plus the uh, post-event drinks, uh, which, you know, thank you, Max Agal, for that. Um, great, uh, great to have your support. Um, but, but just, 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 Going back to think about personal development, obviously, I, I mean, every, every you know, winter, Christmas, uh, New Year holiday, I, I sort of say to myself, oh, I'll, I'll do an extra course or a MOOC mass online course, you know. But 
I mean, maybe I didn't achieve all I wanted, but what I did do was I listened to more podcasts. Yes, some were more, uh, you know, personal, you know, interest. Um, but but I but I enjoyed our friends at the uh, uh, Conversations in Close Protection, Chuck Randolph, Chris Torrey. They had on uh, Dr. Treston Wheat, who we have had on uh, before, mm -hmm. um, talking about the journal that they are uh, coming out with or have come out with, and. I mean, it was really nice to just have the, the time to sit down and, and, and listen to that podcast because I get the feeling many uh, operators are listening to this podcast uh, on the move or in transit, um, yeah. perhaps when they have some downtime. And funnily enough, the professional development for me was to just become a listener, <laughs> you know, just just think, what does the, the audience want to know? Yeah, I think if you if you're listening to podcasts, I think many people do it as a you know pastime. They're in the gym, they're in the on the train or whatever it is, and they do it just to drift off into you know to relax. But I think if you're doing the personal development con podcast, you, you need to have an intention, you know, what you want to what you want to learn from it, and and actually concentrate on it, you know, and actually spend the time. Be a listener instead of you know doing your workout or you know running about doing whatever you're doing i think you, you really need to focus and you know there is some great podcasts out there you know some some great people offer some amazing content and it's just finding the ones that work for you indeed and and and, and that's the beautiful thing you just you get a flavor of them you download them there the, these audio files they're so fast to download it's not like oh i need a movie you know um and uh and conversely and conversely and you know if anyone has a critique of our podcasts of this nature please do uh let me know i listened to one non-security related podcast and it was a lot of inside jokes that required you having listened to all of the other episodes and i i didn't like that because obviously i'm not party to the to the joke and that's why i like what we're doing in 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 doing it thematically mm -hmm. no I, I i totally get that when i've you've know, listened to several podcasts like that where they're going back to a previous one. And if you haven't listened to that, you feel like ah, it defeats you. You know, if they've got a hundred episodes, I'm not going to go back to episode one <laughs> to listen all the way through. Right. It's, uh, it, it can certainly defeat you before you even get started. And then you can, you're in danger of you know losing your listener because they just go, I'm going to go to another podcast. Makes, you know, you need, you need, you need people to feel welcome. And, and then with this, I, I do appreciate and also answers on a postcard because I know many of you came up uh, to us at CP World and said, hey, I, I like this angle. Or, you know, someone said, can you bring in some more medical uh, uh, episodes? Yes, we'll, go, we'll do it this year. We will. Uh, so um, any, 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 any thoughts or critiques gratefully received. You might be transiting, traveling uh, or, or having even extended downtime right now. But we want you to feel welcome, and therefore we're trying to make each episode accessible and thematically based. So, thank you very much, uh, Oliver. Hope to see you uh, at the CP Tech Forum on the twenty fifth of January at the Grand Cornet Rooms in London. And uh, looking at Asia, I think what a, what a, what a nice start to the new year. I've I've really uh, appreciated it. Obviously, if you want to know more, go to Oliver and he can speak you know more directly to your individual questions but uh as a first start for the new year i think this has been great so from sean and myself this has been another fantastic edition of the circuit magazine podcast
You have been listening to the Circuit Magazine podcast. Be sure to subscribe and be sure to not miss an episode.